2: Boris Johnson found himself in boiling water this week, as MPs in his own party and the opposition laid into his plans to undermine the Brexit withdrawal agreement. This is his deal. It's his mess. It's his failure.
3: For the first time in his life, it's time to take responsibility. It's time to fess up. Either he wasn't straight with the country about the deal in the first place, or he didn't understand it.
2: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. Today, I'll be looking at the discontent in Parliament about Number 10's Brexit plans, highlighted by Shadow Minister Ed Miliband at the top there, and increasingly prickly relations between the Prime Minister and his MPs with political editor George Parker and columnist Robert Shrimsley. And later... I'll be asking with NVIDIA's takeover of the British based chip designer ARM and Hitachi's decision to pull out of a major British nuclear project, does the UK have any coherent industrial strategy? Joining me to discuss this is Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard and business editor Peggy Hollinger. But before all of that, George and Robert, welcome back to the podcast. Morning. Hi, Seb. So it feels like it's been somewhat business as normal in Parliament this week with Tory MPs rowing, being angry behind the scenes. And I feel like we've seen quite a lot of each other in the House of Commons having coffees and lunches. And It's kind of jarred a bit with the fact that we've now got these new lockdowns again in big parts of the country.
4: Yeah. I mean, the problems are piling up for Boris Johnson on multiple fronts. And you heard the clip about Brexit and the complete disaster that unfolded this week from a presentational and strategic point of view for the government in terms of this internal market bill. And that has aroused a lot of disquiet that was already not far from the surface among Tory MPs about the way the government's handling things, its overall grip. And that's compounded, I think, by the resurgence of coronavirus, the fears that the government hasn't got a grip on the testing strategy. And among a certain strand of thinking in the Conservative Party on the more sort of libertarian end, the idea of the government is actually overreacting to the return of coronavirus and uh, you stick all that together and it's a pretty toxic mood, I think, among Conservative MPs. Having been back in the Commons for the first time for the last two or
3: three weeks, you are noticing the pickup of MPs around Portcullis house, around parts of the Commons. And of course, that's giving them the chance to talk to each other face-to-face about how fed up they are and have all been talking by WhatsApp and they've all been chatting. So it's not that hasn't been happening, but... It is different when you see each other face to face and I'm really fed up about this. I'm really angry about this. What the hell is the government doing? And the other point, of course, as one of the older hands said to me, is that you had all these new MPs arriving at the December election, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed, desperate to be part of this government. And they disappeared from Westminster within a few weeks. And they haven't been, as they say, socialized to Westminster. They haven't learned the conventions of how you deal with the government when you're not happy. And... They're offered back in their constituencies, hearing the gripes and grumbles from their constituencies and not hearing the counter argument from their colleagues about why you've got to stay loyal and help the government. So it's all boiled up in a series of problems for the government and a variety of different flashpoints and different issues. And added to all those new MPs, you've got all the old ones who know they're not going to get any further preferment from Boris Johnson and have absolutely no incentive to play nice if there's
4: something bothering them. I was speaking to one of the old hands this week who said Every week is an absolute ordeal for me. Uh, it's driving me mad. And I think that's a general view among many MPs. They don't know what's coming next. And they are at the end of their tether.
2: Well, indeed. And I can remember people in Downing Street saying, oh, we just need to get our MPs back again and everyone will be happy and harmonious. Whereas well, I think this week has shown that actually with the MPs back, things have got even less harmonious. So George and Robert, let's get into the main story of the week. The internal market bill, designed to shore trade within the four nations of the UK, creates a stink amongst Tory MPs and the UK's allies. Backbench rebels, unhappy at the prospect of breaking international law, forced Downing Street to back down and compromise on its plans. But the plan has still caused consternation amongst the UK's allies, particularly in the United States. Dominic Raab, our foreign secretary, has been visiting Washington DC this week and claiming the government's plans were necessary the UK action here is defensive in relation to what the EU is doing.
4: It is precautionary. We haven't done any of this yet. uh, And it is proportionate. Uh, But what we can't have is, and this is contrary to the Northern Ireland Protocol, and of course, a risk
2: to the Good Friday Agreement. What we cannot have is the EU seeking to erect a regulatory border down the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and Britain. So, George, let's begin with this rebellion. When the internal market legislation was proposed last week, Tory MPs seemed to be pretty unhappy, but it felt as if that coalesced around a group of people led by Bob Neill, the Bench MP, former minister and chair of the Justice Select Committee. But instead of just facing down the parliamentary party, Number 10 seemed to listen. How and why do you think they changed tack?
4: Well, mainly because I think they realised they'd got it badly wrong and they couldn't afford to have a running battle with their own MPs. And this wasn't a battle about Brexit. It was actually a battle about, as Ed Miliband put it, right or wrong, or indeed, in this case, whether Britain should be willing to break international law when it passes its own domestic legislation. And for a lot of people, they saw that as a fundamental issue. And it was an issue, I think, which was going to cut through to the public. People could understand that it's a bit odd that your own government is breaking the law. So I think by the time we got to the vote on the second reading of this bill on Monday night, where tempers were fraying. It was plain that there was going to be a big Tory rebellion. The whips backed off. There were no threats to remove the whips from people this time. It was almost an acceptance by that point. They got it wrong. Boris Johnson got some of the leaders of the rebellion into his office in the House of Commons, and they sat down and basically said, look, we're going to try and make it up to you, which is indeed what happened about 48 hours later when we saw the government accepting the amendments put down by the rebels, adding a few more concessions on top. And Although this is by no means enough to satisfy the European Union or to our international partners, because the bill, let's be frank, still breaks international law, it takes some of the edges off it. And the thing that baffles many Tory MPs, even the ones who weren't part of the rebellion on Monday night, is why on earth did they get to this point in the first place?
2: So Robert, the amendment that was proposed by Bob Neill essentially would have given MPs a lock on whether to activate this clause in the Internal Market Bill that would have undermined the withdrawal agreement. And we haven't seen what number 10 is proposing, but we're told that's what they're going to do. So the threat, the revolver on the table, as it's been described in the Brexit talks, is still there, that there is still the prospect that the UK could undermine the withdrawal agreement, but MPs would have to actively vote to do that. But in some ways, that doesn't really speak to the concerns of people like former Prime Minister Theresa May or former Chancellor Sancho Javid, who said, this is not the thing you should really be doing. That's absolutely right, although it is nice to see the return of a
3: meaningful vote. We've certainly missed having one of those in Parliament. I think what is happening in this compromise, assuming it does all come good, is that the rebels are putting off the task of having to rebel now for the possibility of having to rebel later down the line, and that's always a more attractive proposition. I think as interesting as the compromise is the government is also not rushing this through the House of Lords, which was the original intention. It's delayed that till, I think, mid-October. It was absolutely certain to be defeated in the House of Lords, and the bill would then have to come back to the Commons, and whatever the Lords taken out be reinstated. So they haven't got that much time to make this bill law if the Lords decide to cut up rough about it. And one of the things that made it very, very difficult is that the senior Tories speaking out against including some very, very credible Brexiters, like, for example, Michael Howard, Norman Lamont, the former Attorney General Geoffrey Cox, that gave a lot of cover to other MPs. And a lot of the rebels on this are the older Tories who are not looking to Boris Johnson for preferment. They don't expect another chance in government. They see no reason to compromise their principles on this. So the government just recognises it's got itself onto a hook in Britain alone, let alone with the European Union and possibly with
2: America. Well, it's certainly not just the EU who's been unhappy about this. We've seen quite a stark reaction from the United States. The FTs reported on Friday Donald Trump's envoy to Northern Ireland, Mick Mulvaney, has warned about undermining the Good Friday Agreement, but so has their Democratic presidential candidate. And so has Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. And she said that there won't be a trade deal if the withdrawal agreement is undermined.
0: There will be no bilateral US UK agreement if the border, the Good Friday Accords, uh, in regard to uh, the border, changed. And and actually, how can they walk away from an international agreement? How do you trust that? Well,
2: George, that's been a bit problematic for Dominic Raab, who, as I said earlier, is in D.C. this week and has been trying to smooth over this whole thing and has learned that this legislation that started as something with a ruse to try and get a better Brexit deal looks as if it's done serious damage to
4: the U.K.'s international reputation already. Well, it shows a remarkable blind spot, doesn't it? It just shows how dysfunctional this government is, that they didn't think that this was going to be a potential problem in Washington, where we all know the Irish American lobby is extremely strong. The Irish Northern Ireland protocol that this is all about was painstakingly and agonizingly constructed compromise to try to maintain the fragile peace process in Northern Ireland, keep the border open on the island of Ireland. And for the government to be reneging it, it was such a blatant problem. And Boris Johnson was asked whether he was warned by the embassy in Washington about this potential problem. And he said, well, he wasn't aware of it. But nevertheless, he should have been aware that this was going to cause problems, not just, of course, with our American allies, but right across the European Union as well. And just has added to a sense of chaos. And Dominic Raab's visit to Washington, frankly, didn't really smooth many feathers. You do have to admire the strategic genius of this bill, though. You have the
3: internal markets bill created, among other things, to ensure that the UK can strike a trade deal with the US and it now turns out to jeopardize it you have the uk seeking greater freedom from european restrictions so it can get this trade deal with the us and again this bill seems to jeopardize it and what i think is being made abundantly clear to people is that it's a cold cold world out there if you're not part of any trading block and even an economy as substantial as the uk's is nothing compared to the economy of the european union or the united states and the truth is we're caught between two stools on this one and you need to keep both sides happy or at least make sure you're keeping one side
2: happy when you're in that position. But George, if we try and step out all the rhetoric and angst over this, I thought possibly the most striking intervention this week was from Ursula von der Leyen, who is obviously very involved in the Brexit process. And as we splash on the FT, she still thinks a deal is very possible. And it feels as if We're going through this whole process of creating a lot of angst, a lot of distrust. But fundamentally, nothing has changed on Brexit. It's still probably in both sides' interest to get a deal. The only real question now is whether there's still enough good faith to do it. But none of the fundamentals in Brexit have actually changed
4: due to this. Well, I think that's a very good point. Ursula von der Leyen was underlining that in her um, interview with the FT and some other media. That It's worth remembering, even at the height of this massive row between London and Brussels and in Parliament about the Internal Market Bill. There were some quite positive discussions taking place in London between David Frost, the British negotiator, and Michel Barnier, his counterpart. Michel Barnier reported back to diplomats in Brussels that actually Britain seemed to be being a bit more flexible. And ironically, one of the results of this whole row is that this bill, as Robert said, is now heading to the House of Lords towards the end of October, and a big bust-up coming up with people like Michael Howard or William Hague. So in a way... Boris Johnson is under a bit of pressure to try and get off this hook by getting an agreement with the EU before this all blows up again. So we've had this discussion many times before. My view is that it's always been in the interests of both sides to get a trade deal at the end of the year. And all the political things that are going on for Boris Johnson at the moment just add to the pressure for him getting a deal. We know that pressure for Scottish independence, the question of his government's competence, which is now a huge issue. Boris Johnson says he wants a deal. Well, can he actually deliver it? If he doesn't, You have to countenance the prospect of chaos at the border, traffic jams at Dover in the middle of a coronavirus crisis. And you don't have to be a genius to see that Boris Johnson actually will want to take problems off his plate rather than add to them. And if the sticking point is fish and subsidy control regimes, is that really a ditch you want to die in when so much else is at stake for your government? I'm not sure it is. I do think George is right. I've also always thought that there's another
3: reason why Boris Johnson needs to get a deal, which is that actually... Brexit is not settled unless we have a form of trade deal. We're going to spend the next decade renegotiating our relationship with the European Union, whatever happens, because there's always better deals to be done, more liberalisation to get, more growth to secure. But if you're starting from a basis, sort of fairly substantial basis, then those changes are incremental. If you've got nothing, then the whole of the Brexit settlement is still up for grabs, and it makes it possible for the Labour Party to say, actually, Boris Johnson completely allows this up. We need a different vision for Brexit. And that's really not in the Brexit's interest. The one caveat I have on this, however, is that there is one argument, which is the worse things get for Boris Johnson and his government in every other respect, the more he needs to fall back on Brexit because Brexit is the glue for the Conservative Electoral Pact. It's what keeps his voters solid. And the more he seem he can portray himself in the short term as standing up for Britain by fighting the European Union and showing what he's made of, the more that coalition hangs together. I think the one worry that people who want to see a deal have is that actually as coronavirus gets worse, as other things get more problematic, you could actually see Boris Johnson falling back on the Brexit rhetoric in order to keep his electoral coalition tied together. And there's certainly people around him in Downing Street who see that argument. Mm. And I think it's a fundamental point that he is making a lot of noise about how destiny could be
2: a no-deal Brexit. There is no logical argument for doing it, but it could still happen. And finally, George, I just wanted to pick up on where the PM's personal standing is amid all this. That the Spectator magazine, which is very much the in house Bible of the Tory party, and Boris Johnson used to edit, lambasted him this week. They had a cover of the Prime Minister lost at sea and described him as a forlorn creature skulking around Westminster. And you do have to raise this question of where is the PM? It feels again that he's been thrown about by events and that he's tried to reach out to the party. He had a Zoom call with Tory MPs this week that was something of a disaster because he didn't take questions. The communication links went down. And as we were saying at the beginning, Yes, MPs are back in Westminster and they're chatting again, but all the chat this week really seems to be about what is the PM doing, where is the leadership and why is he so detached from proceedings?
4: Well, he feels and looks like a lonely and isolated character, doesn't he? And um, I was in the House of Commons chamber just looking down at Boris Johnson's face while he was being torn apart by Ed Miliband of all people. And he looked forlorn, distracted, agitated. And that sort of sums it up, really, that if he ever had contact with his own MPs, he's losing contact with them, and that disastrous Zoom call was sort of symbolic, really, of the breakdown in relations. Set against that, we have to say this, the Conservative Party didn't elect Boris Johnson because he was a House of Commons man who spent a lot of time in the tea rooms, shaking hands and asking about MPs, wives or husbands. He was chosen by the Tory party because he looked like he could win an election, and that's what he did. He won an election with an 80-seat majority, and that is always at the back of every Conservative MP's minds when they have these discussions about Boris Johnson. And they will make a calculation nearest to the time of the next election as to whether Boris Johnson can help them win their seats. And if he can, they'll stick with him. In the meantime, the knives are clearly out, as they have been for you know many months or even years, for his team of vote leave advisers led by Dominic Cummings. So I suppose if things get tough for Boris Johnson, the first thing he could do if he was being really ruthless, although he's shown no sign of it so far, is throw some of his advisers overboard to gain himself a bit of time. But we're not at that point at the moment. Lots of people talking maybe about having another view at this in the middle of next year if things haven't improved. But at the moment, the mood is really, really bad.
2: George and Robert, thank you kindly. Now on to a very different story. Hitachi announced this week it was pulling the plug on a major nuclear power station in Wales. NVIDIA, the American chipmaker, sealed a £40 billion takeover deal for Arm, the crown jewels of the British tech industry. What links these two together? It's a big question about what industrial policy, if any, the Johnson government has. As Herman Hauser, the founder of Arm Holdings, warned this week, letting Arm go into American hands and under its so-called CFIS foreign investment restrictions could be a huge strategic mistake.
4: If Arm becomes a U.S. Yes company, it falls under the US CFIUS regulations. So the decision on whether hundreds of UK companies that use ARM processes can sell to and export their products anywhere in the world, this decision will be made in the White House and not in Downing Street. And I think that's unacceptable.
2: Well, Jim Picard, before we get on to the question about ARM, let's start with Hitachi. You broke the story this week. The Japanese company will be pulling out of the WIFO power
0: station. Why is this such a big blow? So a nuclear power program of this government goes back a decade and it is a story of basically failure. It's very much not a story of success. And this is all about hitting climate targets it's about the fact that we are hoping to get to net zero carbon by 2050, and therefore we need our electricity to come from sources that aren't coal and preferably aren't gas. And the reason that people want nuclear is because it provides base load. That means it's not intermittent, unlike sunshine and wind. Now, if you look at this program, I mean, I've been writing about this for about a decade, and... The only one of half a dozen sites that people have talked about, which is actually being built at the moment, is EDF's site in Hinkley Point in Somerset. And that is several years late. It's got cost overruns. And that is the one that is ahead of everyone else. If you look at all the other potential sites, there was one called Moorside up in Cumbria, where Toshiba pulled out But the thing about Wilfer is that Hitachi paid 700 million pounds for this back in 2012, which was an incredibly positive sign that they believed that this nuclear program was going somewhere. And then a couple of years ago, they said, well, actually, we're going to put the project on pause. But they still kept a skeleton staff there. They were still negotiating with the government about what kind of subsidies they could agree. The government was talking about taking an actual stake in it at one point. But this week's announcement was the death knell for that project. And it's a reminder that there's this huge gap potentially in our provision of electricity in the future. And although renewables are being created at a much faster pace than people expected, the nuclear program is all over the shop. So Peggy Hollinger, welcome to the podcast. Um,
2: as Jim was saying, nuclear power is a core component of the UK's efforts to hit that net carbon zero here. And it gives a sense, this feeling that the whole nuclear program, there was this vision that was created sort of five, 10 years ago, but actually implemented, it seems to have struggled.
1: Well, I think the first thing I would say is I agree with everything Jim said, but I disagree slightly with something you said, that there was a vision. I think fundamentally, this is the problem. In fact, this was a plan going right back to 1995. Tony Blair was the first one that said, we really need to step up our generation of nuclear power, the percentage of nuclear power as part of our total power pot. But what this government and previous governments have failed to do is maintain a consistent vision. I think the second problem is, is that, you know, there are certain industries where, frankly, the government has to take on the risk if they do have a goal and an ambition. And frankly, you know, the history of nuclear power is that the costs always overrun, that the projects are always delayed. And part of the problem is that when they first set out this policy, they actually wanted the private sector to entirely fund everything, even at the time. And I was covering nuclear power in France at the time. Even at the time, people thought this was very ambitious and very unlikely. When you look at France, which decided in the 1970s after the oil shock that it needed nuclear power because It didn't have its own natural resources. They set a vision. They actually set a vision in the 1970s, stretching out to the year 2000 and beyond, in which they set out, this is how many nuclear power plants we want. This is how we're going to achieve it. We're going to mobilize the state resources, the government-owned companies. Yes, they had government-owned companies that could be directed to do this. But they set out the goal. They set out the plan. The problem here in the UK is, A, we're uncomfortable with any long-term planning In that sense, we're uncomfortable with choosing sectors, we're uncomfortable with supporting sectors, but sometimes if you have a goal, the risk is too high for the market, you have to step in. I think fundamentally consistency is a big part of the problem.
2: Well, I think if we go from the vision issues of nuclear power to the other visions of British tech, and the other story, Jim, you've been looking at this week has been about um, and this is obviously a huge success for, for the British tech industry. And it was sold to SoftBank in 2016 at the wake of the EU referendum. And now it's been sold again to NVIDIA. Do you think the government made a mistake by overlooking and not intervening because some of our FT colleagues, for example, have suggested that the government should have tried to get Arm back as a publicly listed company to make sure that it wasn't going into American
0: hands here? I don't think at this point that that's an option that you can somehow sort of prevent what is now a Japanese owner, which is SoftBank, from selling it to somewhere else on the other side of the world. I mean, we, the British government, in, to some extent, lost control in 2016 when that initial transaction happened. And what we have now is we have a deal between a Japanese conglomerate and a giant American chip maker. And it's quite interesting to sort of see what the government's powers are or are not. And, and in 2016, what the government did is it, it didn't call it in on competition grounds to the Competition and Markets Authority. But after the deal was announced, the government did persuade SoftBank to make various promises. And one of those promises was that the arm holdings headquarters would stay in Cambridge, and also that the workforce would be doubled in the UK over five years. And interestingly, SoftBank did that voluntarily. But once it had made those pledges, it was under the Takeover Code It's legally enforceable, which means that until September 2021, those promises have to be kept. I mean, the interesting thing here is that I was on a conference call on Monday morning with the chief executive of NVIDIA, and I asked him, what is the legally watertight gold-plated pledges? You put out a statement saying that you want to keep the headquarters in Cambridge, and they want to sort of start a new artificial intelligence unit in Cambridge, but there was nothing there about timeframes. There was nothing there about legally binding promises. He has said to our colleague Richard Waters overnight in San Francisco that actually they will do whatever it takes legally and they'll sign some legal papers if they have to. So I think let's watch that space. The other interesting question is whether the current government will call it into the CMA. And I know they're thinking about it. You can only call in mergers and takeovers on four different criteria, one of which is national security. And because Arm is quite a big supplier to the defence industry, they could. But I think let's watch that space on that one. So Peggy, obviously, we've heard
2: um, lots of reports about Dominic Cummings, who's Boris Johnson's chief advisor, wanting to have a multi-billion pound UK tech company, because he thinks it's strategically important for the UK to have that kind of presence in the world. He thinks it's going to be very important for the stability and security of its economy. And Arm is one of those companies, you know. You can make the argument this here exists. It is probably the best British tech story, and again, it raises this question of if that is the strategic vision of the Johnson government, then why is it letting this thing be waved through?
1: There are a couple of things to say here. I mean, Nvidia, if this deal goes through as planned, is spending forty billion dollars cash and shares. It's not going to want to throw that away. It's not going to want to destroy the value. So. I'm sure that you know Nvidia is sincere when they say, "Look, we want to grow this. this is an amazing company the The problem comes not necessarily in the next two or three years. The problem comes further down the road when the parent company runs into issues themselves, is forced to consolidate its operations, et cetera, and I think you know, that's when the risk is that you see actually bits get sold, bits get consolidated into a single site, jobs get lost, etc. And maybe, you know, one of the key issues with Arm and NVIDIA is, you know, Arm is an independent supplier. It licenses its chip designs, provides them to everybody, is not a competitor. NVIDIA is going to be a competitor to many of the customers that Arm traditionally has had. You know, will those customers stay with them? Will ARM become almost less valuable just by virtue of the owner? So there are lots of things here. But for me, really, the issue is that, you know, further down the road, how do you, when those um, promises, even if they're legally binding, expire and SoftBanks expired, I think next year, when they expire, what happens then when times get tough? If you're a UK headquartered company, you tend to retrench towards, yes, the most competitive markets, but you know, your headquarters has a disproportionate influence. I think this is the risk for ARM. This is the risk for the UK. But what can the UK do about it? What can Dominic Cummings do about it? Very little, I think. They can exercise their influence. They can press Nvidia, say they'd be persona non grata. We saw that with Kraft take over Cadbury when Kraft uh, reneged on its promises. You know, Kraft is very much a company non grata in many ways here. But realistically, what Dominic can do about it, I don't think there's much he can do. So the question then is, how does the government encourage and create an environment that will persuade NVIDIA that no matter what happens, you keep Arm here? Because it is vital. I mean, we keep talking about how uh, in the United States, all the advanced tech companies are relatively young compared to what we in the UK and Europe have, companies that have been around for 50, 60 years and longer. How do we create these small companies that develop into global blockbusters? And we have that in Arm. And frankly, I think it is tragic that back in 2016, the government didn't say we have some concerns about this. But again, it requires a vision. It requires a commitment that lasts more than two or three years. It requires successive governments, cross-party understanding. And for that, you actually need an industrial strategy that sets a vision and a goal that everybody can rally behind, including businesses, because they will invest if they have the confidence to know what are the goals.
0: The fascinating thing here is that if you think about the Brexit negotiations and why they've stalled, it's for two reasons. One is because of the fish industry, which is an almost negligibly tiny industry. And the second is because of state aid, because we know that Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson want the independence and the freedom for the sovereign British state, free of the EU, to do whatever it likes on state aid. And yet the fascinating thing is, no one has really explained what industries the government wants to help in what way? No one has set out a strategic vision. There was an industrial strategy that was published a couple of years ago, but it was more like a kind of hodgepodge of stuff the government was already doing. It's fascinating to me that we could literally end up having no deal with the EU because these guys want control over industrial policy. And yet, all we're seeing is pretty random interventions here, like buying one web satellite company, and then other non-interventions elsewhere. And the whole thing seems quite random.
1: Absolutely, Jim. And we seem to be consistently afraid of saying, here's the big thing that we want to achieve in 15 years time or 10 years time, and we're going to put all our money behind it. And it's up to you what areas you're going to explore within that. But it's a big goal of a hydrogen fueled economy. Go away, invent, innovate, whatever. We'll back you.
2: Jim and Peggy, there's clearly plenty more we could talk about there and we will definitely come back to this in the future, but thanks for joining us for this discussion. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamare. The sound engineer is Breen Turner, and the editors are Liam Nolan and Amy Keane. Until next time, thanks for
1: listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.